church. Happy anniversary. Yeah, happy anniversary. Yes, it's good to be with you guys. Good to see y'all again. We miss y'all down the street uh, at ARC, and we are always encouraged when we think of you. We always encourage that the Lord's work in your life of the gospel witness here in Congress Heights, uh, and always encouraged to know that he who began a good work is going to carry it on until completion. That he's got more work he's going to do in and through you, and, and we'll get to rejoice forever uh, when we see it all in eternity. So again, on behalf of the, the ARC family, happy anniversary to you again. I want to give you a, a, a special happy anniversary and greeting from my darling wife, uh, who wishes she could be with us, but uh, right now is on the road to North Carolina. I think the last time we were here, we were in a joint service uh, with Community Hope and you guys, and um, you all prayed for my wife's mother. And by your prayers, the Lord has brought her through a lot of things, but he hadn't quite brought her all the way through. Uh, there's still some things that are going on with her health. She has a, a neurological appointment tomorrow. It's an appointment that um, we've been waiting on for, for months uh, and Christy very much wanted to be there with her mom as she goes to um, that next step of seeing how the Lord heals and, and provides for her. So she sends her love and her regrets that she's not with us uh, this afternoon. Uh, again, it's a joy to be with you this morning and to be thinking with you on your, your first anniversary as a church. And um, Josh was after me all week. He's like, what you going to preach, man? Send me a text. Send me a text. So I'm thinking about it, Josh. I'm praying about it. Two days later, send me a text, man. I ain't rushing you. When you ready? It's okay. I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking, it's probably last night, about midnight, I sent him a text. I don't know, know when it was, but it was later than he wanted. And he was being a good preacher because if you're a pastor, you don't want wrestlers just showing up talking about anything. So you want to know what's going on. I didn't know that you guys were in First Timothy in Bible study. And as it turns out, that's where the Lord led me. So if you got your Bibles, let's look together at First Timothy chapter 5. And I want us to think for a few minutes in verses 21 to 25. Um, before we do that, I want to give us just a little bit of introduction, which you probably don't need. You're studying it. You're studying this book uh, at Bible study, but just a few words of, of introduction. As you notice, this letter is written by the Apostle Paul, one of the leaders of the early church. He's writing to a young man who's his son in the faith, a young man named Timothy, who's pastoring a church in a city called Ephesus. And Ephesus is a little bit like the Washington, D.C. of his time. It's a, it's a city where lots of people come and go, where lots of business is done, uh, lots of happenings there. And Paul had planted this church just the same way that you all planted this church just a year ago. Paul had started this church with a, a small band of folks there in Ephesus, and he served there for a little while before moving on to plant another church in another city. And he's left this young man, Timothy, one of his teammates there, to serve as the pastor of this church. But the transition's been rocky. Uh, the road to leading and building the church for Timothy has gotten tough in some ways that it wasn't for Paul. So try to imagine young, timid Timothy leading this church in the big footprints of the Apostle Paul. And I imagine that that first Timothy might have been a response, a letter in response to young Timothy, that Timothy might have first written Paul to give Paul an update on how things were going. I mean, imagine, if you will, young Timothy walking through the streets of Ephesus. There are people out there with tents and tables selling their goods. 
Maybe there are little children running through the street. People are pressing past each other to get where they're going. Timothy's making his way through the crowd. His, his head is low. His eyes are, are glued to the dusty ground in front of him. He takes a back way to his home, slips into the house, and he maybe sits down at the foot of the bed or sits down at the little desk that he has. And he unrolls this scroll and begins to write to Paul. With the quill in his hand, I imagine he might have written something like this. If you allow me a little sanctified imagination, this might have been something like Timothy's letter. Timothy, your dear son in the faith, to Paul. I've thought to write you several times, but I've just not had the heart to do it. I didn't know how to put into words what I've been feeling, but I have to face the reality. I'm not cut out for this. I'm not pastor material. I don't think I have the gifts necessary for this work, at, at least not as the main pastor. On a team, I'm fine. But I don't think the Lord is with me in this. Things are a mess. Several men in the church, especially Hymenaeus and Alexander, are insisting that we teach the people the law of Israel. I, I'm not sure they're very clear in what they're saying. But they love to talk about the genealogies, and sometimes they use myths as a way of teaching. No matter how I try to encourage and influence them, I'm not having much success. Along with the false teachers, some people are leaving the faith altogether. It breaks my heart. Some of the people we spent the most time with have started, well, living as if they were not parts of the church at all. I've got my hands full with the women of the church. Some are quite immodest in their dress. How do I tell them to change how they dress? Other women want to run the church. They say that if a man can lead, they can too. I don't know why, but we have a lot of widows in the church. We try to take care of them all, but it's grumbling about some of the younger ones starting troubles and chasing men. I'm trying to lead in all of this, but the older members of the church say I'm too young. They may be right. The wealthy members say they should be in charge because they know how to get things done. No one seems to pay much attention to the elders, much less me. To top it all off, my stomach is in knots. Just the thought of gathering with the people leaves me in cold sweats. I've been running a fever for some time, constant headaches. I'm just playing tired. I guess I'm writing to say I can't do this. I'm messing everything up, and it's just plain killing me. With all the love that Christ gives me, That's how I imagine Timothy might have contacted Paul about his first couple of years of ministry at Ephesus. Again, we don't know what prompted Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, but it reads as if he's addressing a very bewildered and beleaguered young pastor trying to figure it all out. And Paul's letter is an excellent letter not only to a young pastor 2,000 years ago, it's an excellent letter to a young pastor today and to a young congregation today. In many respects, the, the church at Ephesus wasn't much older than you when this letter was probably written. So while there are things addressed directly to pastors, and while it's a letter addressed to an ancient church, there are things here that are relevant for, for all of us as Christians 
and relevant for a young church celebrating its first year. So let me give you three lessons from Paul's letter to Timothy that I hope serve and encourage you as a new work of the Lord celebrating your first year. Three lessons. This is my outline. Lesson number one, show no partiality. Show no partiality in the work of the Lord, verse 21. Lesson number two, exercise a lot of patience. Exercise a lot of patience. You see that in verse 22 and verses 24 and 25. And then number three, follow a little prescription. Follow a little prescription, verse 23. No partiality, a lot of patience, a little prescription. Okay? 1 Timothy 5, beginning in verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So this is Paul's little instruction here to Timothy. Now it's occurring in chapter 5. So lots has been said thus far in the letter already. And in the immediate section, beginning around verse 17, Paul's really giving Timothy instructions on how to choose other pastors, how to choose elders. But the instructions here, again, are meant to be shared with the entire church and has application for all of God's people. And the first thing that he says here in verse 21 is to show no partiality. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without prejudging or without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. That's how the NIV puts it. You see, the charge is a very personal charge. He says, you. In the Greek language, that, that word you is in the front, which means that that's going to be the emphasis in the sentence. So he's really kind of calling Timothy up. He's saying, you, hey, I charge you now to take on this challenge. Take on this responsibility to, to set an example here in this matter. But not only is it a personal charge, it's also a, a solemn charge. Notice what he says. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. In other words, Paul says, not only am I going to charge you with this, I'm going to do it in front of all of heaven. Right? There's God the Father, there's God the Son. He could have mentioned the Spirit as well. And he says, among all the elect angels, all the chosen and holy angels of heaven, which no man can number, in front of everybody, Timothy, putting you on blast now, I charge you to do these things. That's heavy and weighty, but it's also encouraging. You realize that your life as a church, your life as an individual Christian, your life perhaps as a pastor or a leader, is live before the face of God. Now, when we think of our weaknesses, we can tremble at that because God is holy and righteous and just. But when we think about his character, that he's also loving and merciful and compassionate, 
And we think about our need for the constant care of God. It's encouraging that this charge puts him in the very face of God, in the presence of God, where there's health. So he says, now I'm going to charge you, and I'm going to give you this weighty charge, and remember these instructions, remember these rules. So what are the rules that Paul has in mind here? Well, in the context, I think most immediately he's talking about, again, verses 17 to 20, how to choose elders. But in the broader context of the whole letter, he's talking about lots of things, how to care for widows. He's talking about uh, how to oppose false teachers. Um, There's all kinds of instruction here uh, for how to lead the church. Now, this is also a great mercy of God. Because when it comes to being a church, God has not left us guessing as to how to do it. He's put it in the book, right? So as you sort of live out your life of faith as a congregation, as you go from year one to year two to year 10 to year 20, if Jesus tarries, during none of that time does God charge you to be creative. He didn't charge you to be inventive. He didn't charge you to be the slickest church in town. He doesn't charge you to have the the newest kinds of ideas. He simply charges you before all of heaven to do what's in the book, right? This, too, is good news because there are going to be many times where we lack wisdom, where we lack insight, where we really don't know what to do. But we know what to do when we don't know what to do. We pray to God and we come to the Bible. And so the charge here is a charge that we all can keep because God has written it down. And it's a charge that we can all keep each other accountable with because God has written it down. It it frees us, for example, from being ruled by somebody else's preferences. I like this song. They like that song. They like this song. Now, if we're going to live by preferences from Sunday to Sunday, somebody's going to be unhappy. But if we live by the book from Sunday to Sunday, We find a way to be unified. We find a way to be on one accord. We find a way to forget ourselves and to remember God, to remember his instructions and to do what thus saith the Lord. Notice how Timothy must do this. He's to keep these instructions, to keep these rules without prejudging uh, or, or without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Again, that's how the NIV puts it, partiality and favoritism. These are related terms. They're both forms of prejudice. That's why the ESV puts it, um, do it without prejudging. They're both forms of prejudice. Um, Prejudice or, or partiality is prejudice against a person. Favoritism is prejudice for a person. So we're being partial when we are expressing prejudice against somebody. And we're showing favoritism when we're showing a kind of prejudice for somebody. So whether you're against somebody or for somebody, the Bible's like, stop it, (laughs) right? Do nothing. Show no partiality. Or to put it another way, Paul is saying here to this young church in Ephesus and this young pastor, accept each other. Accept each other. In the midst of all the differences of ages or the differences in education level or the differences in the type of work or the differences of where you live or the differences in preferences, there's a better way. Simply accept each other. Show no partiality, show no prejudice, show no bias of any sort. And this makes sense when we think about what God is like, doesn't it? 
Remember what's said over in Romans chapter 2, verse 11. For God shows no favoritism, no partiality. Or in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, where Moses right there, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. So God is not sort of wooed and won by partiality or favoritism. He's the same God with everybody. And that's how it ought to be in God's church, isn't it? As people who say who know him and who follow him, we're to be the kind of church that shows no partiality to the wealthy or the poor, to the educated or uneducated. Because we recognize everyone is made in God's image. Everyone is made in God's likeness. And so we will be well on our way to being a dynamic and a different kind of church if we're the kind of church as you are that shows no partiality, no favoritism. Now, this is particularly important in the immediate context uh, of leaders, verse 21, right? So we're looking for leaders who themselves are not chosen out of partiality or favoritism and leaders who are not um, given to showing partiality or favoritism. When we show those things, we're fearing man more than we're fearing God. But if we fear God more than we fear man, again, we'll have leaders who care for each of the flock with the same kind of love, the same kind of interest. Because basically, beloved, you think about it, partiality is sin, according to the Bible. Prejudice is sin, according to the Bible, whether we're prejudiced for or prejudiced against. Think of James chapter 2. James chapter 2, the writer James says there, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Then James puts it simply in verse 9, if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So, Congress Heights Community Church, whatever else is going on in the world, however else people evaluate churches, if you are a congregation and continue to be a congregation that loves everybody who comes through that door, showing no partiality, no favoritism, but greeting each one as an image bearer and hoping for each one the eternal life promised in the gospel, then you will be one of the greatest churches this neighborhood has ever seen. You will be the kind of church that God is pleased with. You'll be the kind of church where his love comes flowing to everyone without the clog, without the log jam of favoritism and partiality. Because that kind of sin is contrary to the gospel, isn't it? Remember what we are told in passages like John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Now, who did God love? Well, not just the black folk or the white folk or the Asian folk or the Hispanic folk, not just the rich folk or the poor folk, not just the tall folks or the short folks, not just the folks with blue eyes or green eyes or brown eyes. 
God loved his entire creation, the world, and gave his son for the world without partiality, without favoritism. And this is why God's offer of eternal life is to the whole world, to anyone who would believe, anyone who would hear the message that Jesus has died for their sins, been crucified on the cross where God's anger was poured out on him in our place. Anyone who would believe that three days later he was raised from the grave proving that God accepted his sacrifice. That anyone and everyone from whatever background would put their faith in this Jesus as their Savior and God, they would have eternal life and live forever in the love and blessing of God. That message goes out without partiality or bias or prejudice or racism or sexism or classism. That message goes out to every creature. And so every creature, they come to know this God of love. Now, if that's you this morning, if you're here and you're not yet a, a believer in Jesus, I pray that you would be. If there's a hindrance, it's not on God's side. If there's a hindrance, ask yourself if it's in your heart, on your side. And if it is, repent of it and come to this God who accepts people without partiality, without prejudice, and makes them his own children. So, beloved, as you continue to celebrate today, as you continue to look to the cookout on the 23rd, I can bring the plates. If you look to uh, another year of, of service as a church and worship as a church, continue to also commit yourself to another year of impartiality, of no bias and no favoritism. Whether you're sharing the gospel in your workplace or sharing the gospel at the, at the uh, metro stop or sharing the gospel in the park, as you continue to take the gospel door to door and park to park and neighborhood to neighborhood, Continue to do so with this, this free, joyful heart of showing no favoritism and no partiality that every creature may hear the gospel and be saved. That's, that's what honors God. And I'm led to believe you honor God as you do that. This brings us to the second thing. For a young pastor in a young church, exercise patience. Exercise patience. Show no partiality exercise a lot of patience. You see that beginning in verse 22. Notice what Paul says there. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. It's that first part where we get uh, the idea of showing patience. He says, do not be hasty. Don't be in a hurry. Don't try to microwave stuff. Don't try to get stuff done quick and and fast, but instead be patient. And once again, Paul is talking here about selecting of leaders. And he's saying, listen, when you select leaders for the church, don't, don't be in a hurry to do that. Don't be quick to do that. Don't do that based on popularity. Don't do that based on first impression. Instead, be patient. Let God bake that thing slowly. It talks about the laying on of hands. It's talking about something that probably comes from the, the Old Testament where priests would lay their hands as a symbolic act on goats or lambs. And they would, in laying on hands, transfer guilt to that animal that would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. The church now is transferring not guilt but authority to those who are in leadership when they lay on hands and set that person aside to lead in the church. So Paul says now, don't be in a big hurry to do that. Be patient. 
Be thoughtful. Be careful. He gives us a couple of reasons for that in verses 24 and 25. First, we ought to be, not be hasty, but patient, right, in order to keep ourselves from sin if we're, if we're leaders or we're a church, right? See what Paul says there? Do not share in the sins of others, right, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure, right? So he could say elsewhere, I think Romans, maybe 1 Corinthians, that bad company corrupts good morals, that hanging out with folks, associating with folks that we shouldn't associate with, uh, that has a way of rubbing off on us, of affecting us. He's applying that same principle here to leadership in the church. He's saying, now, if we're not careful to sort of know a person's life, to know a person's walk, then really they're going to do what leaders do. They're going to then shape us. They're going to rub off on us. In that way, we're going to be borrowing the sins of other people, borrowing the failures of other people. So instead of doing that, be patient. Look for qualified people. He gave us the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, right? We want to look for people, 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, who are training themselves for godliness. Indeed, the whole church should be training itself in godliness. Leaders are not different in that sense. They just are examples of it. But all the Christians in the church are, are training themselves, exercising themselves to godliness, pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness, as he says in chapter 6, verse 11. That means we just want to be a church of, of, of patiently baked A-plus people, people of character and quality, not hasty, but patient. The other reason that he tells Timothy to be patient there is in verses 24 and 25. And you might put it this way, you, you know a tree by the fruit it bears. You see what he says there? That, that some sins are obvious, right? They, you can recognize them right away. But some sins come along later, right? There are things there in a person's life that you don't see when you see him walked in with a striped shirt on and a purple tie. But if you hang around a little while, you'd be like, oh, I know that was in there. Okay, you struggle with that. All right. We all got struggles, right? We all got things that we're dealing with. And sometimes it takes patience to see those things. This is why Paul says, don't be hasty. Don't judge things quickly. Take your time. But he says, now, the other thing is true, too, that, that righteousness in a person's life is sometimes easily seen. It's obvious. That brother right there loves the word. That sister over there prays. That, that person right there they, they just love people. This one over here is a real servant, and you can see it obviously. And then he says a, a similar thing, but different thing about righteousness. He said, but there are some forms of righteousness you don't see right away. They come along later too, and guess what? Even if you don't see it, God does. God will reward it. And so we want to wait for that fuller fruit, that fuller harvest. When I was a little boy, uh, I spent a lot of time growing up in my grandmother's house. And uh, one of the houses that my grandmother had uh, had been in the house, uh, had been in the family for at least three generations, been built by uh, my great-great-great-granddad. We call him Grandpap. And he had a grapevine in the backyard. And as a little boy, I loved to go out there and, and play in that vine and pick grapes off that vine. And my grandmother was always like, baby, them, them grapes too green right now. Don't eat them grapes right now. Wait, let them, let them, let them ripen first. 
but I'm, I'm young, I'm pulling at the leash, I can't stand to let the thing ripen. Is it, you know, an hour later, is it ripe, Grandma? No, baby, you got to wait. Next day, is it ripe, Grandma? No, baby, you ain't got to wait. Now, after about a day, I'm sneaking around the other side of the vine where Grandma can't see me out the back window, nibbling on them, grape, on them green grapes, bitter and sour, but I'm still eating them. And before long, your boy got a stomachache. Right, and I'm going in the house, Grandma, my stomach hurts. See, you out there eating them grapes, what are you? Right, and we can be like that. We can want the fruit quick, right? And we can start eating what we think is fruit before it's ripened. You know, trying to sort of take that thing that seemed like, okay, there's going to be life there, there's going to be a fruit there, there's going to be a cluster there, but we want to use it before it's time, right? And we're rushing to do things rather than letting the Lord and his patience grow the vine. Ripen the fruit, make it readier for us to eat without stomach ache, right? But to eat with great pleasure and great joy, right? Now, he's talking again about leaders, but this applies to all of us, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? What a wonderful thing it is to be a part of a church family that lets the fruit of the Holy Spirit ripen in the lives of our brothers and sisters where we don't rush, rush each other to pretend to be perfect. And we don't rush each other to pretend to be super spiritual. And we don't rush each other into this ministry or that ministry or this activity or that activity that somebody may or may not be ready for. But instead, we prayerfully and patiently encourage one another and say, I think you might have a gift there. Or I think you might have a skill here. Or it seems like the Lord uses you over here. Why don't we pray and see if that ripens? Why don't we pray and see if the Lord develops that? Man, what a gracious way to live together as God's people. What a wonderful way to live together as God's people. And it takes the pressure off, that pressure that you may not have felt, or maybe you have, of comparing your church to someone else's church. Man, we've got to be in a hurry to have this ministry because all the other churches have this ministry. No, you don't. Or we've got to have this kind of praise and worship, or we've got to have this kind of preaching, or we've got to have this kind of outreach ministry, and we're just rushing to get those things done. Here's the interesting thing. So I spent a fair amount of time with pastors, a fair amount of time with church planters, and if you talk to them for more than a couple of minutes, here's what you notice. That the model for their church which is just beginning, is not a model based on another church that is just beginning. It's modeled usually based on a church that's 30, 40, 50, 100 years old with an established congregation and lots of people and therefore able to do lots of things. And so they just keep evaluating themselves against something that has matured on the vine for much longer instead of something that's actually their age. And it creates this impatience and dissatisfaction and discouragement. And guess what we do? We despise the day of small beginnings. Right? Well, the Lord takes pleasure in the day of beginnings. The Lord takes delight when we start stuff, not just when we mature stuff and, and when we grow stuff and when stuff is, quote, unquote, successful. He is delighted in these little things that look feeble to us. They look weak to us. 
But to him, he's like, no, 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 no. That's my power. That's my spirit. That's my hand. And that's what's happening here at Congress Heights Community Church. The Lord is showing his hand and bringing into the world a church that was not here 367 days ago. A church that was not meeting 370 days ago, but is now here faithfully proclaiming the gospel, not just Sunday morning for an hour and a half, but also Sunday morning out at the metro and Saturdays out in the park and other times during the week. Oh, beloved, let me encourage you. If you're in any way tempted to compare God's work here to God's work somewhere else with an older church, or even God's work somewhere else with a church your age, is to forget the comparison and learn to sort of see God's work here, rejoice in God's work here, and not despise the day of beginnings and not rush the fruit. Let it grow. Let it mature. Tend the vine. Fertilize it. And beloved, let me assure you that he who began this good work will carry it on to completion in your life individually and in the whole congregation's life. And if there are some things that are not plain to you that you cannot see right now, don't be discouraged by that. Again, consider verses 24 and 25. There are some things that God is doing that you cannot see and you will not see in this lifetime, but that will be seen in eternity when God makes all things known. There are words that you are speaking to people that, that don't seem to bear fruit right now. There are times where you have shared the gospel with folks who seem not to respond to it. There are praises that you have offered up to God that seem like they didn't get above the ceiling. And yet, in the fullness of time, will be seen to have been used by God to do glorious things. Don't faint. Don't, don't rush. Exercise a lot of patience. You'll reap if you don't faint. Which brings us to our third thing. Take a little prescription. You know, I'm a preacher, so we had to have three Ps. <laughs> so the closest I can get to a P for verse 23 is prescription. And that's because Paul gives Timothy a prescription. Notice what he says there. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Now, verse 23 is not primarily about drinking alcohol, right? The issue is Timothy's health. Here's a young man who has developed stomach problems. We don't know why, but uh, likely because of the things that Paul addresses here, likely because of stress and other things. Beloved, pastoring is hard. Church planting is hard. Being a Christian is hard, right? This, this is not like the broad, easy path. That path goes to destruction. This is the narrow path that leads to life, right? And there are challenges on this path. There are hard things on this path. There are stresses on this path. You have stresses as a Christian that you would not have if you were not a Christian. You have difficulties as a Christian that you would not have if you were not a Christian. Because there are things that you would give yourself to and not think anything about. That now if you were to do it because Jesus lives inside of you, you'd be troubled if you did those things. There are ways that you would respond to life that you can no longer use because now Jesus lives in you. A man used to offend you, and you would tell him about himself. Now you're like, Lord, please help me with my next word, right? Attention comes out of that because Jesus is present in your life. 
there, there are things you used to do. There, there are people you used to want to holler at, people you used to want to hang with, places you used to want to go, and things you'd want to do there that you can no longer do because the witness is inside of you. The Spirit lives in you if you're Christ. And it's like, no, that's not the way. And so there are difficulties and struggles. And even when we get together with other people who are on the same narrow path, headed to heaven, pursuing Christ, on that path, guess what? We start bumping into each other and jostling each other a little bit. So even with people who have the same vision and the same goal, sometimes we get on each other's nerves. Sometimes we fail each other. Sometimes we disappoint each other, right? Those things happen, and because we know that God is calling us to better, it just creates anxiety and stress and difficulty and heartache. Timothy is experiencing this, I think. I think that's where his stomach issues come from. Many of us are experiencing stress and other things because it's hard to live in a fallen world and serve a risen Christ. It's just hard. But notice what Paul says. Paul says, drink a little wine for your stomach. Now here, again, I don't think he's talking about get drunk so you don't feel your stomach hurting. That's not what he's saying, right? But in the ancient world, wine had a little medicinal value. Even in our, in our time, just, you know, a, a little appropriate glass of wine, it was good for your heart, things of that sort. So there's a medicinal value in wine. That's what Paul is saying. If we were put it in the language of our, our day, Paul is saying, actually, you need to practice a little self-care in order to be able to care for others, right? That's the prescription. And it's a prescription that's good for all of us, good not just for pastors, but it's good for people too, to do the thing that give you health so that you might actually be not only physically healthy, but spiritually healthy. And to do the things that give you health so that you can continue the race that God has set before you. Right? So we need to be good stewards of our bodies. See a doctor. If you need to see a doctor. Take a walk several times a week. Eat better than I eat. Right? Eat well. Eat things that are good for you. Here's one. Take your vacation days and your sick days. Stop working extraordinary hours. I know sometimes a little overtime helps. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't. Figure out when that is the case, right? Get a good night's sleep. Ain't that no Netflix, right? And if it is, it's going to be there tomorrow and <laughs> the day after that, right? Don't stay up all night and then rise early eating the bread of anxious toil. Go to sleep because God is never sleeping. Rest in him because he never rests. He watches over us. Take care of yourself. So if Jesus doesn't come back soon, which means he's going to give us opportunity to continue to serve him, then that means we're going to need to take care of ourselves to run the long race that's laid out for us. Drink a little wine for your stomach. Take a good nap on Sunday. Do whatever it is that allows you to to feel well. Practice affirmations. I love the song that we sang earlier where we're talking about I am who you say I am. Well, isn't it a wonderful thing to get into God's book discovering what he says or who he says we are and then affirming that. 
the, the leaders, the pastors and elders and staff at ARC, we've been doing a training on trauma-informed care. And uh, we were on, the, on a training yesterday, and Dr. Sierra was talking to us about self-care and practicing affirmations. That was one of the self-care things. And she's like, you know, you know, go to your bathroom and look in the mirror and say good things to yourself in the mirror. You know, you look nice today. You have pretty brown eyes. I like Dr. Sierra. I ain't never doing that, right? <laughs> it, it feels awkward even thinking about that, right? And she's like, well, make it spiritual. Say, God, you gave me pretty brown eyes. Like, that, that don't help. That don't help. But we do need to practice affirmations. And here's the thing. The reason why the practice of affirmation as individuals has gotten to be so popular in our day is because we too often fail to practice affirmation in community. If you spend most of your week with no one telling you, you look nice, your hair's nice, I like the way you did this, you have a real gift at that. If you spend most of your day or week not receiving encouragement, then sometimes the only person left to encourage you is yourself. But we should be the other way in God's household, shouldn't we? We should be affirming each other, celebrating each other, reminding each other of who we are, who God says we are, and living in that truth as a way of taking care of ourselves, as a way of building one another up, as a way of practicing self-care. So, show no partiality. Love everyone God gives you to love. Show a lot of patience. Wait for the fruit to develop and ripen. And then take this prescription. Taking care of yourself. Run the race together. Not alone, but as a family, as a team. Affirming each other. Building each other up. And whatever else the Lord does, as you plant and water and as, as he gives the increase, whatever else happens beyond that, God will be glorified and continue to be glorified in his work here in you as a congregation. And may we love, live to see great fruit. And if we don't see it in this lifetime, we'll see it when he comes. We'll see it in glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us your instruction. You've taught us in your word how we ought to live in order to bring you praise and honor and glory. And we thank you, O Lord, for the grace that we discover in your word. That you are a God who loves indiscriminately. And you call us to do the same. And you're a God who shows great patience with us. Not rushing us, not crushing us or punishing us for our slow development. But Lord, you nourish us. You take your time with us. And we pray that you give us grace to do that with each other. And we thank you, Lord, that you have called us to be good stewards of our body. You've given us this prescription to take care of ourselves while we do your work. We pray that you would give us grace to do that. I pray that for Joshua. I pray that for the men and women of Congress Heights Community Church, Lord, that in every way you would show them your love and that in every way they would reflect your character, Lord, by being impartial in their love, by being patient with each other, by taking care of themselves and each other and continuing the work that you've given them until you come. Keep your hand of blessing upon this work, I pray. Keep them, O oh Lord, from despising the day of small beginnings. But help them to rejoice, O oh Lord, the way you rejoice in such beginnings. 
Help them to feel your pleasure, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.